please join me in standing or kneeling for the opening prayer. Lord Jesus, as we look at your prefigurement of your sacrifice on the cross for us and the depth of God's love for us, we ask, Lord, that we would be inspired by your love to trust you with all things, with our whole selves. In Jesus' name, in your name, amen. Please be seated. Well, here we are entering into the second Sunday of Lent. Um, We entered into this season on Ash Wednesday talking about death and talking about the fact that Christ died for us and that we're all called to die to our flesh, to our old nature, in order to live in the Spirit. And then last week, on the first Sunday of Lent, we heard God's word to us on suffering and how Lent is a gift of the church that can prepare us to suffer well and with union with Jesus Christ. Today, we look at a test, and we look at Abraham's faith and trust in God's goodness. As we look at the Old Testament, we hear today in the text what we also hear on Good Friday almost every year, this text from Genesis is the text that's used on Good Friday, and Deacon Mark, I know, has preached on it, but it's one of those texts that speaks from many different angles. And so here, intentionally, the church puts it in Lent to prefigure the cross, to prefigure the crucifixion that we'll be commemorating later on in the season. Just as Genesis and the story of Noah prefigures holy baptism, or foreshadows it, so the sacrifice, or the apparent sacrifice of Isaac, is a prefigurement of the father handing over his only begotten son to death on the cross. So let's look at the text together. If you would, open with me to Genesis chapter 22. We'll be primarily in the first reading that Ryan read for us today, Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. We read, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. What's going on here? Well, the first thing that the passage shows us very intentionally is that this is a test. It is a test. It's a test of Abraham. And one of the things that we know from Scripture is that when God tests us, he doesn't do it in some kind of nasty, sadistic way, but he does it for our own good. And indeed, we're going to see here in this passage, that this test for Abraham is for his and Isaac's good, as well as for the good of all human history. But of course, they can't see that. Abraham doesn't seem to have any kind of indication that this is a test. But of course, if he did, that might betray the nature of the test, right? 
So Abraham doesn't know quite what's going on. He's called to trust in God, and he's called to trust specifically in three attributes of God. His goodness, his power over life and death, and his trustworthiness, his promise-keeping. And so we're going to see that develop through the passage here. What God is doing here is so much bigger than Abraham and Isaac could ever comprehend. For Abraham, being obedient and trusting in the Lord, is showing forth something thousands of years later that God will do with his own son, Jesus. Look at verses 3 and 4. Abraham trusts and obeys the Lord. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. It's interesting that this journey takes Abraham three days. Not inconsequential, I don't think. Abraham takes three days in his testing. And it must have been quite the journey, right? If you think about what's going on here, we don't know what Abraham thinks. We don't know much of what Abraham even says during that time. But he certainly must have been wrestling. He certainly must have been in great turmoil here. The God whom he knows to be good has asked him to imitate other gods around him. Abraham had come from the place of Ur. And in Ur, child sacrifice was nothing new. It was part of their religion. And so Abraham would have been very familiar with everything that went along with that. How the sacrificed human being would be stretched out on the altar on top of wood. His throat would be slashed with a knife. His, he would be dismembered. And then only to have the fire consume what was left. He would have known that. And then for these three days... He would have been thinking about that, traveling, thinking about how it is that this good God would require him to do it. Isaac probably would have been a teenager. The Hebrew behind this um, that speaks of Isaac just prior to this passage in um, chapter 21 calls him a lad, a lad. So a very young man, probably we'd call an adolescent or teenager, And if you can imagine what he must have gone through every day um, on that journey, looking across the campfire at his son, who held not just his value as his son, but also all the hopes and dreams that Abraham would have had. For think about it. The firstborn son is the one to whom all the property goes, to whom the good name goes, who runs essentially the family business for generation upon generation. And here God's requiring that he take that and offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. But then take the human side of looking over the campfire and saying goodnight to that son, knowing what's coming. We get 
a little bit of a glimpse into the mindset of Abraham, I believe. One of the commentators I read this week, um, Gordon Wenham, says that the order that Abraham prepares for the journey drops a little breadcrumb for us to see into what's going on with this wrestling and the struggle. Look at verse 3. Did you catch it? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. What's wrong with the sequence of events there? Yeah, the wood, right? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you rise early in the morning, saddle your donkey, and then go chop firewood? Anyone that's ever chopped firewood, which I'm very familiar with, knows that you don't, like, start the car and then go chop your firewood, right? So what's going on here? The text is showing us the stress that this is taking on Abraham. The wrestling that's going on with his mind, so much so that he's not thinking quite straight, right? He's struggling here. He's struggling here. Author, uh, commentator, and pastor Kent Hughes writes that here Abraham's faith was going to be stretched to the utter limit. And as a father now, I must agree, I don't think I would have slept a a wink for those nights. But this test of Abraham is not the test of a cruel God. And it's not the test of God asking Abraham for blind obedience, as some people think this passage means. No, that's not the point. God's not testing to see if Abraham will unreflexively and unthoughtfully obey and just say yes. God's power and ability to demand obedience, he does have that power and ability, but so do the pagan gods that surround Abraham. But rather, God is testing Abraham and asking him the question, do you trust me with your only son? Do you trust me with your most valuable possession? Do you trust me? And do you trust that I'm good? Do you trust that I'm powerful? Do you trust that I'm trustworthy in keeping my word? You see, the first test is moral, But, of course, it's also incredibly personal. It's an intellectual test, yes, but it's far from academic, right? Think about it. How many times have we talked about the goodness of God? But it's something much different to talk about the goodness of God and to assent to that as a precept and to live into it, to put your whole self into it, right? You might assent to it intellectually, but it's quite different when the rubber hits the road, so to speak. And you have to put your trust in God's goodness. And so here we see that's the first test. The test is, can I trust in God's goodness? Is God good? And Abraham is experiencing this within his own context here in the Old Testament. But he's also showing something else. He's also showing God's love for his son who would be offered as a sacrifice. You see, this is the first part of the test. We don't know Abraham's thoughts, but we know that Abraham must have been wrestling with the goodness of God. Look at verses 5 through 8. 
Then Abraham said to his young, to his young men, rather, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his, and he took in his hand, rather, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. What's going on here? We're seeing Abraham's faith get stronger. There's just small glimpses of it, but it's here in the text. Did you catch it? You have to read very carefully. Where do you see Abraham's faith in God's goodness? Where do you see it? Specifically, verses 5 through 8. God will provide the sacrifice. Absolutely, yeah. So there's one. There's actually one before it that's a little bit more nuanced. Verse 5. What does Abraham say to the young men that accompany him? Isaac's going to come back. Yeah. Do you see that? It's implied, and it's actually clear in the original language. Verse 5 reads, Then Abraham said to the young man, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Well, that's kind of puzzling. If indeed he's going to sacrifice his son on the altar and burn him up, how's he going to come back to them? Now, you could say this is just a white lie to keep the servants at bay, but I don't think that's the point here. I think that would be missing the point. No, rather, Abraham here is wrestling with God's goodness, but he knows that he can trust God, and we get to the second part of the test, that he knows that God has the power over life and death, that even someone killed and burned up can be brought back to life again by God. You see, he's probably not voicing it that way in his own mind, of course, but he's struggling with it, and he's coming to it. His faith is growing. Look at verse 7 and 8. As Barney pointed out, he responds to his son when he's asked straightforward, where's the lamb? Which is an interesting thing by itself that we can't get into, but where's Isaac get this idea that a lamb's going to be sacrificed, right? And then all of a sudden, he responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so here we see, once again, not just a statement that applies to this specific context in the Old Testament, but a statement that will ring through to the ages, that God will provide for himself the lamb. That God will provide for himself the lamb. The test continues. Does God really have the power over life and death? Again, it's one thing to assent to it, it's another to live through it. God is good. His goodness is in contrast with those pagan gods who require human sacrifice. But does Abraham really believe that God has this power over life and death? 
So we might say that there could be, theoretically, right, some kind of scenario in which killing your son is a good thing, right? There could be some kind of weird scenario, morally, where that's a good thing. Now, you know, I can't give it to you, but you probably know it. And yet, here Abraham struggles with that, too. Does Abraham trust God? Does Abraham trust God to have power over life and death? Finally, the third part's mixed in there, the third point of the test, and that is, does Abraham trust God to keep his word, to keep his covenant? Why do I say that? Well, what's happened earlier in Genesis here? God has promised Abraham and Sarah Isaac, the son, right? And it's been a miraculous thing that this son is born to Sarah in old age, right? Genesis 17, 19, God says, God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. But he goes on and says, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. He repeats this promise as recently as just the prior chapter in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, reminding Abraham right before this happens that through Isaac, his line will go on. I'll read it for you. It's actually Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. So this is immediately before the passage today. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, that is Ishmael, and because of your slave woman, that is Hagar. Whatever Sarah says to do, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 13, And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So what's God saying? He's reiterating this covenant between Abraham himself about Isaac. So you see, Abraham passes through this test that God puts before him, but he does so by faith or trusting in God by trust and faith in who God is, in the character of God, not in blind obedience to some almighty power. Quite different. God has power over life and death, and he is trustworthy. But at this point, I've got to shoot straight with you. I didn't come up with this sermon. I didn't come up with this sermon. The author of the book of Hebrews did. And so this is one of those great instances where Scripture is used to interpret Scripture. This is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, where we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, 
from whom, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The author of Hebrews goes on to say that Abraham foresaw Christ in this action. And so you see what's going on here is really important, not just to see God's love and consistency of the gospel, the good news and Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, but also in application today for us. Why does God put Abraham through this? Well, at least for two reasons. Number one, God's testing is aimed at stretching our faith because God's good is beyond our understanding. Because God's goodness is beyond understanding. Because he sees the bigger picture that we can't hope, hope to see. Look, look at Abraham and the difference between in time between him and Jesus. And yet God is using that here in the Old Testament back in Genesis. Do we think that somehow we're any different than that? No, God sees that. But God also helps Abraham and Isaac understand What's going to happen? Look at the insight that they get into who God is. And look at the insight that they get into how much God loves us. As much as Abraham loves Isaac, so much more does God love his son Jesus and yet goes through with the sacrifice of his son for us. Do you see? And they get to see that. Now, it's a hard seeing of it. It's a testing. It's a struggling. But they see what God is doing and what he's going to do. They perceive from afar. God's testing is good both for them and for all mankind. It's a lesson for us as we continue to talk about our own trials and sufferings. Are we able to put the things and the people that we value most into God's hands? It's one thing to intellectually believe that God is good. It's one thing to intellectually believe that God is mighty. It's one thing to intellectually believe that God will keep his covenant and his promises. But it's quite another thing when we're asked to give our whole selves to him when we're asked to lay upon the altar the things that we love the most, whether it's things or people or even parts of our own selves. That is so much more. That is dealing with trust. That is truly putting your whole self into the hands of a good God and believing that He will bring good of it. Do we like Abraham learned, trust that he has our best interest at heart, that God has our best interest in mind. And yes, though this life might be painful and cost us everything, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Can we give that into his hands? One of the hardest things that I've ever had to do as a priest is to go into sometimes a hospital room, sometimes a home room, and talk with a family as their loved one dies. Thank God I've never had to do it with a child. But as I've met with people in that situation, one of the things that I say to them is, as much as you love that person, 
Think about that. As much as you love that person, God loves them more. Can you release them? Can you let them go? Knowing that God loves them more. And indeed, that's like where the rubber hits the road at the most extreme of circumstances, but it also applies to the lesser things in life too, doesn't it? It applies to our time. It applies to our money. It applies to our resources. It applies to ourselves, right? There's those small things that we do in life and we place into God's hands day by day, over and over again. This is one of the reasons the church uses alms, especially during Lent, right? Because one of the things that we seem to value most and put our security in is in our money. And so the church says, here, give your money to the poor. Give your money to those less fortunate than you and trust what I will do with it and that I will take care of you. But you can put it, you can universalize that across your life, right? That's just one way that we do it. Is God trustworthy is the question. Do we live in that? Do we walk in that? Do we take those small steps so that we can better believe in it? Because, friends, it's in those small steps that our faith is built. It's in those times of testing when we're stretched that our faith grows and that we get closer to God. But let's get back to Abraham. He's incredibly blessed. God does provide the sacrifice. God, in this text, provides the ram. And he sacrifices it. And look at Abraham's response. So Abraham, verse 14, called upon the name of the Lord, or called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount, the Lord of the Lord, it shall be provided. And of course, thousands of years later, on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. God gave his only begotten son to a death on a cross, to an efficacious sacrifice for all mankind. Jesus speaks of Abraham before he dies. In John chapter 8, verse 56, he says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's from the lips of Christ himself. And finally, the author of Hebrews concludes his little sermon. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering his son. And then finishes, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. Friends, as we walk forth from this place, realize that you're a foreigner and stranger on this earth. And yet God has sent his son to bring you into his kingdom. And you see more closely than Abraham and Isaac could ever see the reality of who Jesus is. So as we go forward, who is God really to you? Do you believe him to be good? Do you believe him to be trustworthy? Do you believe him to have power over life and death? And not only do you mentally assent to that, but can you believe with all of your heart so that 
so that you can hand everything over to him, knowing that he loves you and those whom you love. If not, continue to grow in your faith, for the answer is that none of us can do that. Continue to ask for God's grace that you might be able to. And we will continue together on this journey. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.